Father, we thank you so much for those words. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, never, never forsake. Father, we are here because we have come to see that to be true, and we know that you love us and you will never forsake us, no matter what suffering comes our way. Father, I pray that you would help us to believe it and to know that down to our bones. And I pray, Lord, that uh, this word this morning would be a help and a boon to your people to bear up under suffering, but also to think about boasting aright. And so, Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Comedian Brian Regan says that he hates being at dinner parties that are dominated by what he calls me monsters. The uh, me monster is that kind of person, we all know them, who do nothing but dominate conversation with tales of their own fantastic exploits and triumphs. You start to tell your story, they butt in and they say, well, that ain't nothing, right? And then they go on and they talk about, you know, when I was driving down the Audubon in my uh, Maserati, I uh, never noticed how beautiful the countryside was uh, near my villa. And, you know, my car is so fast I often don't notice, you know. But, uh, you know, I tell you what isn't as fast, my yacht, you know, we can see that. And it's very, very, uh, it goes a bit slower, but we can see my other second home very clearly from that. And they just go on and on, me, 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 and I have this, and I've done this, and I own this. Regan says he hates the me monsters, and he just wishes that he could be an astronaut for a day so that in that situation, he, would, he could one-up them because nobody can one-up an astronaut. And you can let a me monster go all the way out on their limb boasting about their exploits but if you're an astronaut, you can always come in at the end and say, well, yeah, but I've walked on the moon. One day when I was driving in the sea of tranquility in my lunar rover, um, I thought, I wonder if I'm going too fast. But then I remembered, oh, I'm driving on the moon. Of course, it's fine. I can go as fast as I want. We all get the joke, right? Because we've all been around folks who take every opportunity to boast and to make much of themselves. You can do it subtly, you can do it obviously, but, but people do this. And who hasn't privately wished that they could one-up a me monster? But the truth is you can't really fix foolishness with more foolishness. If it's unbecoming and vain for a me monster to take over a dinner party conversation, it'd be, it wouldn't be any less vain or foolish for an astronaut to do the same. It would be just as unbecoming and foolish. And the reason is because boasting about yourself is always a bad look. 1 Samuel 2.3 says, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. 
Proverbs 25, 14, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. You know, boasting involves holding up and highlighting an accomplishment or a deed so that others can see and admire it. If that's what boasting is, can boasting ever be right? Can it ever be a virtuous thing to do to hold up and highlight an accomplishment or a deed so that others could admire it? Now, the passage that you and I are studying this morning presses this question upon us because Paul brings up boasting no less than eight times in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And he tells his readers that he intends to do some boasting himself. And so if Paul is boasting, and boasting is always a bad look, how could Paul, could Paul be doing such a thing in the pages of Scripture? Why would Paul choose to speak this way with what he calls boasts? Is Paul sinning in the words written in this chapter if they do indeed consist of boasts? If Paul is boasting, does does this give us a permission slip to boast too? Can we become the me monster at the dinner party and the center of attention and make much of ourselves if that's what Paul is doing here? Well, if we pay close attention to what Paul is saying in this text, we get the answers to all of those questions. And ironically, there, there actually is a kind of boasting that Paul, that Paul commends to his readers. But it's not the kind that involves boasting in oneself for the purpose of exalting oneself. If you haven't already, I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 in verses 16 through 33. Now, so far in this chapter, we've seen that Paul has been warning the Corinthians about false teachers who've crept into the church. People are listening to them. And in verse 13, Paul says, such men are false apostles deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. He warns the congregation that, they, that these guys aren't what they appear to be. And he says in verse 14, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. These guys are wolves and sheep's clothing. Superficially, they look like reliable Christian teachers, but they aren't really that. And the Corinthians, Paul says, need to stop listening to them and giving them a platform and don't listen to their boasting anymore because these guys are actually boasting about everything that they are and do. Instead, Paul says that the congregation needs to recognize Paul's authenticity as a true apostle of Christ, over and against all these rivals who've interposed themselves into the congregation and are trying to put themselves between Paul and, and the people. And so to get them, to get the congregation to see what they need to see and do, Paul is going to do a little boasting here. But in doing so, he's going to give us a glimpse of how a humble servant of Christ Jesus should boast. So a humble servant of Christ Jesus is going to boast, number one, reluctantly. He'll boast about his suffering, number two. And number three, he'll boast about his weakness. 
So that's where we're going this morning. The humble servant of Christ, if he boasts, is going to boast reluctantly. That's in verses 16 to 21. He'll boast about his suffering. That's in verses 21 through 29. And he'll boast about his weakness. And that's in verses 30 through 33. So first of all, the humble servant of Christ will boast reluctantly. Now everybody look at verse 16. Paul says, I repeat. Let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Now, none of what Paul is going to say in this section is going to make any sense unless you understand that he's using a fair bit of irony and satire when he writes here. He's going to talk like boasting is foolish. That's what his opponents are doing. But then, now, as you see right here in verse 16, he's also going to make the case for his own boasting. And the way he talks draws a contrast between the kind of boasting that the false teachers are doing versus the kind of boasting that he's going to be doing. What's the difference? Well, notice that he says in verse 16 that no one should think of him as a foolish person. His readers are not thinking of him correctly if they regard him as a fool. He's an apostle, after all. Nevertheless, if those in Corinth are tolerating foolishness from false teachers, Paul is making the case here that they should be able to tolerate a little bit of quote-unquote foolishness from their own apostle as well. So look at verse 17. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Now stop right there for a second. As I was studying this text, this verse gave me a great deal of pause. It was, it was very difficult to mind to the bottom of what, what exactly he's saying here. Um, first of all, that, that word confidence is probably not the best translation here. The term is, um, is, it probably indicates something more like a boastful state, not a boastful confidence but a boastful state. So um, what I'm saying in this boastful state, okay, this, this, this boastful project that I'm on right now, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. And Paul is again speaking ironically. He's going to boast in the sense of holding up and drawing attention to his own experiences as the authentication of the fact that he's an apostle of Jesus. But when he speaks this way, He's not speaking literally when he says, um, according to the Lord. Did you notice that? This is the part that gave me pause. He says, I say this not as the Lord would. Literally, it's, I say this not according to the Lord. And that's the part that's, that it's a little puzzling at first glance. And some interpreters have taken that phrase to mean that when he boasts, he's doing so against the will of the Lord. So it's not according to the, the will of the Lord. So it's against the will of the Lord. In fact, if you look at the New Revised Standard Version, it translates it, not with the Lord's authority. And it's, 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 it's almost like the rest of the, ter- the words in this chapter are not coming from the Lord Jesus, but just from Paul. It's just stuff coming up out of his, his head here. Now, I, don't, I think it's a terrible interpretation of this, I think that translation should change. I wouldn't want you to walk away looking at whatever translation you're looking at thinking that that's what Paul means here. 
When Paul speaks, he says in uh, chapter 13, just a couple chapter, chapters later, chapter 13 and verse 3, he, he says that it's Christ who speaks in me. Right? So Paul is not going off script from the spirit of Christ when he speaks in chapter 11. That's not what this verse means when he says, I say this not according to the Lord. So then what does he mean when he says this, that he doesn't speak literally according to the Lord? I think what he means is that he's going to speak in a manner that the Lord himself never spoke. You never saw an example of this in his ministry, but the way that he's about to speak is nevertheless necessary and actually trustworthy for the need of the moment that they're facing. Jesus never had to write a letter to his disciples to remind them of his identity and presence. He, they, they, they didn't need a reminder of who he was when he was with them. His presence and his word had a self-authenticating power that was unrivaled. But now Paul is no longer with these people, and he's you know, communicating with them from afar, and he does have rivals. Paul has a... And Paul has a healthy reluctance, however, about boasting because he doesn't want to cross over into the foolish territory of his rival's boasting, but he's going to do it anyway because God's people need to be reminded of who he is over and against the false teachers that he's contending against. So verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. Now, who is it that's boasting according to the flesh? It's the false teachers. They're listening to these false teachers boasting. They're, they're, to some extent, some, at least some of the congregation has come under their, their sway. And he's saying, okay, since they're doing this, I'm going to boast as well. But when Paul boasts, it's not going to be according to the flesh. And his reasoning here is this. If you can tolerate listening to their boasting, you can listen to me, your apostle, and the kind of boasting that I'm going to put before you. Now, the, the question is, what kind of boasting is this? And how can it be that this boasting isn't sinful? Well, Paul explains elsewhere the kind of boasting that he does. So in Romans chapter 15, for example, verses 17 through 19, Paul says this, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. What's he boasting in? Himself? No. In things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the faith, uh, the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Now notice there, the boasting does involve things that Paul's involved in. It involves his own experiences. But what's the boasting in? It's, in, it's boasting in what God is doing through him. So the difference between a sinful boast and a godly boast is the object of your boasting. If you're boasting in yourself to make much of yourself, it's a sinful boasting and it's, it's pride. If you're boasting in what God has done, even if it's what God has done in and through you, and you're doing it for the edification of God's people, not just to exalt yourself, that's not sinful. That's called the ministry. That is the Great Commission. That is called bearing witness. That's what God has called actually all of us to do. And that's exactly what Paul is doing in chapter 11. Paul is going to boast in a way that draws attention 
not to his greatness, but to his weakness and to God's grace at work in him. And he's doing it for the purpose of rescuing God's people from the clutches of the false teachers. That's not a bad boasting. That's the good kind of boasting. A little earlier, John Wilsey read to us from Jeremiah chapter 9 and verses 23 and 24, which Paul has, has quoted both in, both in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians because it defines the way he thinks about boasting. But you remember this in Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. What's prohibited? Boasting in yourself. But verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understand and knows me, and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. There's a good boasting, a bad boasting. Bad boasting, boasting in yourself. Good boasting, boasting in what the Lord has done. Even boasting in what the Lord has done in you and for you. Look at verse 19. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. Can you sense the irony there? He's being sardonic with them. You're so wise, but you gladly bear with fools. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were not too weak that we were too weak for that. Paul is saying with a kind of biting satire, you know, you claim to be wise and yet you listen to and you coddle these foolish false teachers. And then he lists the evidence of what they've put up with from the false teachers. These false teachers are enslaving them. They're devouring them, which probably means they're taking advantage of them and taking money from them. Remember what Paul said he wouldn't do? Take their money. Remember that? He says, they're devouring you, which means they're probably taking advantage of them, taking their, their, their money, um, all the while exalting themselves. Even, he says, when they slap them in the face, which may be literal, could be literal that they slapped them in the face. It may actually be, though, a figure of speech for just insulting them, looking down on them, condescending to them. Even when they slap them in the face, the Corinthians are enduring this from the false teachers. And Paul is saying, ironically, well, I was too weak to do anything like that. I mean, you think I'm weak and they're strong. Well, I guess I was too weak to mistreat you. Why is Paul defending the boasting that he's about to do and contrasting it with the false teachers? Well, none of his words are an example of Paul being a prideful me monster. Okay, but of Paul doing his level best to win God's people back to, an, to the truth, to win them back to hearing him out. If, if you go to your high school reunion and you hear a guy bragging about being, say, a doctor or something, and he's bragging about being a you know, very successful physician, about all the money he's made, about all the important people that he knows, that would be an example of a person being a me monster. That would be pride and boasting, and it would be, it would be wrong, right? If a guy steps forward and he, he starts boasting about being a doctor. But if you're on an airplane and one of your fellow passengers begins to have a heart attack 
And there are a lot of people crowded around trying to do whatever they can to help them, but they don't know what to do. And a guy comes forward and he says, you know, I'm a doctor. In fact, I'm a cardiologist. I've dealt with hundreds of people like this. Everybody make way. I know what to do. Let me through. When a guy does that, in that situation, you don't rebuke the guy for being boastful. That's not what's going on there. Yes, he's just held up his own achievements for everyone to recognize and respect, but why has he done that? He's not doing it to exalt himself, but to let everyone know that they can trust him to take care of a dying passenger. He's trying to get a sick man connected to healing. That's what's happening there. And what do you do? You don't rebuke him for being boastful. You thank him and you thank the Lord that someone like him was on board and made them, themselves known. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not going to recount all his experiences to make much of himself. He's recounting his experiences in order for God's people to understand where they can find life and truth. So that they don't get disconnected from the gospel. If they listen to the false teachers, they will perish. If they listen to Paul, they will live. And Paul is merely trying to keep them connected to the healing stream. I've said it before, I'll say it again. We have to stay connected to the healing stream. We have to stay connected to it. We have to, to put aside the voice of rivals to the word of God in our lives. But where is the healing stream? It's not coming from television. It's not coming from the culture. It's coming from the word of God, which has been inscripturated for us. We don't have an apostle with us here in person. We do have an, an apostolic word with us. We also have the prophetic word made more sure because of Jesus' confirmation of it. All of this is borne witness in the pages of Scripture, which means we accept no other rival authorities. And we are grateful that Paul stepped up and said, I'm a doctor. Let me help. We are grateful that he does what he does in this chapter communicating to God's people that he actually does hear from the Lord. There actually is evidence that the Lord has worked in his life. And so we listen and we treasure this word as the very word of God. When this book speaks, God speaks and we don't turn away from it. So Paul in verses 21 to 29 <clears throat> excuse me, in verses 16 to 21, he boasts reluctantly because he, he wants to make sure that he's, he's not boasting, or he doesn't want to give the impression that he's boasting in, him, in himself. He doesn't want to get into the sinful kind of boasting, but he boasts reluctantly and he explains what, exactly what it is he's about to do. But then secondly, he boasts in his suffering. Look at the second part of verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Now, when he's talking about anyone else daring to boast of something, he's talking about the false teachers again. Whatever it is they're boasting about, I could also boast about that. And so he's going to mention some things that he has in common with these false teachers. What does he have in common? <clears throat> um, the fact that they're Jewish. And what he says is when he gives a list of the things that the false teachers are boasting about themselves, he's going to show that he either meets or exceeds all the qualifications that they claim for themselves. He's not inferior.
to these so-called super apostles who really aren't apostles at all. But look at verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So, so Paul's opponents are apparently boasting in their Jewish heritage. Is Paul Jewish? Well, yeah, he is. Does he mind letting the Corinthians know about that? Well, no, he doesn't. But even so, he's not boasting in that to exalt himself, but to diminish the false teachers in their claims. What does Paul think about his Jewish heritage? Go read Philippians 3. Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, all of those, um, you know, he, he was your quintessential Hebrew, right? He, he was the prime example of one. He says, but whatever to was my prophet as a Jew, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost everything. In other words, all that stuff that people would have thought were to his benefit is really nothing to boast in. He just, he just boasts in Jesus. So, yeah, they, they have Jewish heritage. Well, so do I. Look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Notice that when it came to Jewish heritage, Paul said that he was equal with his opponents. But when it comes to being a servant of Christ, here in verse 23, Paul says he's more so than his opponents. <clears throat> Why is he more a servant of Christ than the false teachers? I, th I think the reason is, is because he's an actual apostle called by Jesus himself, and his rivals are phonies. <clears throat> they may have a claim to speaking for Christ, but it's just a claim. It's, there's no reality to it. They're false apostles, he says, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, he says in verse 13. They may claim to be Christians, but they aren't really following Christ. And that's the main difference between Paul and the false teachers. What Paul is what he says he is, while the false teachers are not. Paul gives four lines of evidence to prove that he's the real deal over and against the false teachers. He's undergone intense labor, he says, imprisonment, beatings even threats of death for the sake of Christ. All you have to do is, is just go read the book of Acts. You'll see how things played out in Paul's ministry. It's, it's the fleshing out of what Paul describes in general terms here. For Paul, being a servant of Christ means embracing the sufferings of Christ, even to the point of death. That last phrase there where he says, often near death, literally means something like, in deaths often. He was constantly facing these concrete uh, brushes with, with death. His life was in peril numerous times. And the following verses give some specific situations in which he came close to dying. So verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Now, some of you know this, but being lashed, whipped on your back, was synagogue discipline. And Jesus had warned his disciples that they would have to face this because of being a disciple. Matthew 10, 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, Jesus says. Before Paul was converted, apparently he participated in these kinds of punishments against Christians. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3 says... 
that a man can be whipped like this for 40, 40 times, but no more than 40 times, lest your brother be degraded in your eyes. So there was, a, in Moses' law, a limit on how many times you could lash a man like this. And because it was against God's law to give any more than 40 lashes, the Jews put a fence around the law, and they would only do 39 lashes so as to keep away from the limit that was set by Scripture. Anybody who wished to remain Jewish, if, 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 if the synagogue said, okay, this is the punishment you have to endure, some lashing for some, uh, uh, some sort of a disobedience, offense to the synagogue, anybody who wished to remain Jewish had to submit to the lashing. And if you didn't, you'd be put out of the synagogue. Paul says, <clears throat> five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. <clears throat> Which means Paul refused to be put out of the synagogue by refusing this, these lashings. Why? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he became all things to all men, that he may by all means save some. To those who were under the law, he acted like he, were, he was under the law. Which means that when the Jews in different cities wanted to whip him for preaching the gospel, he submitted to it. Rather than losing his ability to enter the synagogue and address the Jews, he submitted to merciless beatings on five different occasions, he says. Now you have to imagine what this was like. Getting whipped like that. Think about lacerations all over your back. No antiseptic, no antibiotics. It's, it's, not a, it's no wonder he nearly died from, from doing this five times. But why did he do it? All for the sake of the gospel. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Beaten with rods is a Roman punishment. Um, there's one instance of this that we know of from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, verse 22. Um, uh, we know that Paul was stoned and left for dead when he was preaching, after preaching in Lystra, Acts chapter 14. Paul says that he was shipwrecked uh, in this verse three times and cast adrift for a day and a night at sea. We know of at least one shipwreck because it's recording in the book of Acts, but that doesn't mean there couldn't have been other sh shipwrecks outside of that one. And we, it's not hard to imagine how that would have been a threat to his life every time that it happened. He says in verse 26, look at verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul is describing his journeys as the apostle to the Gentiles. And what is he saying about the journeys? Just about everywhere he turned, it was dangerous. And it's sometimes hard to get our, our minds around this because we're reading this in a first world country in the 21st century. But you have to get, get yourself into Paul's mindset here because you know, when, when you and I take a trip, you know, our expectation is that it's going to be safe. I, I drove with the interns last week to Washington, D.C. and back. We didn't think about like, a lot of dangerous things happening. We just got in the car, went, and came back. Um, we expect, when we travel, to find gas stations, restaurants, food, hotels, law enforcement, emergency services, just about everywhere we go. Can you imagine taking a journey where none of those things were readily available? Every journey was a profound risk. The further you get from cities, the further you get from law and order. 
robbers and violent men staking out borderlands to attack and pillage innocent travelers. And if you're Paul, once you arrive to a town where there may be law and order, the law might turn on you because what you're doing is so offensive. So everywhere he's going on these journeys, he's just facing danger, 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 danger. This is why Jesus' call on Paul's life from the beginning was dangerous and risky. Traveling wasn't safe. You might die just trying to get from point A to point B. And yet Paul doesn't flinch. His ambition was not safety, but advance of the gospel. He wants to preach Christ where Christ hasn't been named, which means he's got to go on journeys. And that's just what Jesus called him to. And so Paul transitions from verse 27, these physical sufferings, to verse 28, to his emotional and mental suffering. Look at verse 28. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul carries with him concern for the well-being of God's people. They're weak, easily misled at times, sometimes suffering and persecuted themselves, always tempted to turn aside and not continue on with Christ. You know, I often personally feel overwhelmed by the needs in this one church. I can hardly imagine the burden that Paul carried around for all of the churches. As an apostle, that was his calling, to care for and to feed all of the churches. And you can imagine how difficult it must have been for a guy to pour his life out to these people, and then he leaves and then finds out that these false teachers have come in and have been compromising them. And some of them are now turning against him, the one who led them to faith. They're turning against him to listen to these guys who've, who've crept in. So you can imagine what this constant concern and burden would have, have felt like. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? For Paul, the weak were those who were weak in faith and who had weak consciences and who were sometimes trampled underfoot by the strong, but who were also perhaps at times more subject to being moved along and taken in by these false teachers. Paul was concerned that they might stumble and be destroyed spiritually. That weighed on him. And you can see the evidence of, of this concern just reading through his letters. He, he's constantly saying this. I mean, go, go read the, the letter to the Thessalonians. He got chased out of Thessalonica, and he writes back to him, and he's, he says, I'm afraid that the tempter might tempt you to be pulled away from Christ. So he feels in his own heart their vulnerability. And when someone causes them to stumble and fall, he's indignant about this. He's, this is something he cannot tolerate as, as an apostle. So what, what's Paul done here? Is he, when he's listing all of these boasts, okay, is he just being, is he acting like the braggadocious doctor at your class reunion? Is this just all false humility and aggrandizement? Or is he speaking like the doctor on the plane? I submit to you, he's speaking like the doctor on the plane. You know, some preachers get really self-conscious when they go to a pastor's conference. The reason is, is because guess what pastors often talk about when they gather together? They talk about their churches. They talk about the highs. They talk about the lows. And when somebody asks you about the church you serve at, guess what's usually the first question they ask you? How many people go to your church? Sadly, for a lot of people, church is really just a numbers game. Even more sad for some pastors, running up the numbers is, is the 
like singular sign of success and faithfulness in ministry. And so they like to talk about those successes, and they want to tell you how many baptisms they've had and how, what, how big their buildings are, how many thousands of people attend their church. They want to tell you how big their budget is. And when people want to talk about their successes, they, they know how, how, how to do that. Now, I spoke with a pastor last week when we were at this conference who um, he recently left an associate position at a megachurch, and he told me that he got really tired of being rebuked by lead pastors for not meeting their baptism goals for the year. No kidding, baptism goals. Now, we all want baptisms. We're all praying for baptisms. But you can't manipulate the Holy Spirit. and You can't, <laughs> you can't say, well, this year we're going to have this many baptisms. Well, who do you think you are? If numbers are your measure of success, then of course you're going to go hold your staff accountable for manipulating people into the baptistry. This is normal for, for these kinds of ministries where worldly standards of, of success begin to dominate a ministry. But notice that Paul isn't presenting his successes as his apostolic resume. That's not what he's doing here. He's not trying to recount all of his baptisms. He doesn't recount all of his exorcisms. If I had ever done an exorcism, I'd want to tell everybody. He doesn't tell, he's not recounting that. He doesn't talk about all the churches he's planted in Asia Minor or in Greece or in all the other places he's traveled. Could have talked about that. Paul could have given them a litany of successes, but that's not what he does. What does he do? He presents to them his sufferings as his apostolic resume. Because his sufferings are what make him most like Jesus. And Paul's aim is to glorify and to honor Jesus. Our hearts are so prone to lust after the praise of men. We're so prideful. We want people to make much of us. We want them to think. And when they aren't making much of us, we'll, we'll just make much of ourselves. God have mercy on us. We do it all the time in more ways than we can count. But we need to have our eyes wide open to see the boasting of this humble man named Paul. He doesn't go to his successes to validate his ministry, but to his sufferings. What if when we're asked about how our church is doing, we don't point to buildings or budgets, but to our sufferings? Now, when I think about what I most love about our church, what encourages me the most, you know what it is? It's first of all that you all seem to love the Bible. Uh, I can get up here, Jim can get up here week after week, and we can preach the Bible, and we can do it without fear that you're going to run us out on a rail uh, for preaching the Bible. Now, you might run us out on a rail for some other reason, but, but it won't be for that, okay? Uh, everybody here seems to, to, to love the Bible, and there are a lot of preachers who love to be in a church where the people you know, seem to love the Bible. But you know what the other thing I think about? When I think about what I love about this church, it's about how well you all suffer, how well you care for one another when somebody is suffering or grieving. There are prayers, there are meals, there's financial support. That's what I think about. So in a very real way, I could boast about our suffering and how the grace of God is made manifest among us in that. So Paul boasts reluctantly, but he does boast in his suffering. But here's the last thing. He boasts in his weakness. And here, finally, in verse 30, he says it in so many words. If I must boast, 
I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why boast in all those horrific experiences? It wasn't because of pride. It's because of God's power is most on display in our weaknesses. That is where God's grace and mercy are most clearly seen in our lives. When we suffer, when we're sick, when we're grieving, when we grow through all of these things and still persevere in our delight in Christ, that's where the whole world sees most clearly the true worth of Christ. And that's why Paul boasts in suffering and weakness. He wants Christ to be on display. Quickly, look at verse 31. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window and a wall and escaped his hands. The question is, why, why is Paul sharing this little vignette here? I mean, he just finished a whole chapter. Beatings, whippings, shipwrecks. And here's this one little story of weakness, but Paul's just, you know, let down in a basket out of a wall. Why is he sharing this story in the wake of all those other ones? I think Paul is sharing this story because this was his first bout with persecution after he became a Christian. The Bible says that after Saul the Pharisee came to Christ, he immediately began to preach Christ in the synagogues at Damascus. Saul, the great and terrible Pharisee, who was accustomed to being respected and listened to in the synagogue. But once he came to Christ, that was no more. And Acts says that Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And you know what Paul's response was to that? Do you know what their response was to Paul's preaching? Was it mass conversions? Nope. It wasn't that. The Jews began plotting how to kill him. So he was no longer the great and conquering Pharisee. He was now the turncoat Christian. And this just left an indelible mark on him. And so now he's being you know, shuttled out of the city like a piece of merchandise in a basket through the wall. Isn't it strange the stories that we Christians tell about ourselves? The weaker and the more desperate we are, the more glorious it is to us when God shows up and saves the day. You know, last week when we were in Washington, D.C., we attended uh, services at the church that was hosting the conference. And in one of the services, we got to hear a testimony from a missionary who is now living stateside and, and serving in this church. And we found out during his testimony that he had served in a Muslim country. And he was a missionary there. And he shared that at one point, a local Muslim cleric released a fatwa against him and his fellow workers that were preaching the gospel there. And he, one of the pastors actually read to us the fatwa against him and his fellow workers. And it was chilling to hear this translation of explicitly calling for their deaths. So... As a result of this fatwa, they had to leave the city where they were serving. And after some time had passed, they had hoped things had cooled down. And so they went back to the city, to the compound where they lived, I think to re retrieve their belongings. Almost immediately when they re-entered re the compound after having been gone for a while, 
The whole place was surrounded by militants. Men began scaling the walls of their compound and coming in. And as the invaders advanced, they, there was nothing they could do. They were completely surrounded. And so this guy who's sharing his story and his fellow workers, they all huddled together under this table in a kitchen. And he said it was amazing the calm that came over them because they were just waiting to die. And they were talking to each other. They were praying and they were saying the word of God to each other. Calm. One of the invaders comes in and he throws an explosive at the house. It explodes and they all go careening across the kitchen. I don't know what happened, but somewhere in this melee, in the confusion, they escaped from there and none of them, none of them died. The story does not end with tales of mass conversions or baptisms. It didn't end with a narration of how their work resulted in the conversion of the village. No, the story ended with their fleeing from that compound and from that city, and they never returned. That's how the story ended. This is what I mean when I say that Christians, we tell the strangest stories about ourselves, but they're the best stories. Because God's grace is most evident and most alive in our most desperate moments. That's why Paul is boasting in his weakness. It's why we have to learn how to boast in weakness in this kind of way. The kind of boasting that doesn't draw attention to ourselves, but draws attention to the Lord who loves us and who has given his mercy to us. Paul boasts reluctantly. He boasts in his suffering. He boasts in weakness. We boast in nothing but the cross of King Jesus. If you are here and you don't know him, the Bible says you're a sinner. You will be separated from God for eternity if you die in your sin. But God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to save sinners. You say, well, I'm a sinner. Well, guess what? He sent Jesus to save sinners. And if you are one, the Bible says if you'll repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, God will count his punishment on Jesus to be yours. He will be your substitute so that you don't have to be punished and that you can have eternal life. All you have to do is repent and to believe in him and you will be saved. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that we would boast in Jesus Christ and in his work for us. Help us to want to make much of him. Help us to turn from making much of ourselves. Help us to see the authenticity of Paul's apostleship and the way he boasted about his weaknesses. And may others see the authenticity of our discipleship to Jesus in the way we boast about our weaknesses and the way that Jesus has rescued us. Do this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.